On the morning of January 11th, I climbed into my car in Fort Collins with a thermos of coffee, a few addresses jotted down, and a lot of time ahead of me to think. I was going on a fact-finding mission to the mountains, looking for documents, sources, anything I could find about Ted Bundy's time terrorizing Colorado in 1975. In the weeks leading up to my drive, the weather had been mild, warm even for winter in Colorado. But that morning, January 11th, rain splattered my windshield all the way down Interstate 25 as I got onto I-70, the gateway to some of Colorado's most popular mountain towns and ski resorts. Starting route to Glenwood Springs. As I drove further and further, the rain turned to snow, a lot of snow. It swept along the road as I clenched my steering wheel. It was a true pain, and it made me wonder, what would the weather have been like on this stretch in January of 1975? Was it like this? January 1975. Wow, I thought, that was 44 years ago. Then I realized something else. January 11th, this morning I had randomly picked to make this drive. It was actually the day Karen Campbell arrived in Colorado. January 11th, 1975. 44 years ago, exactly. Campbell was 23 a young nurse from Dearborn, Michigan, who had come to Aspen on a ski trip with her fiance and his kids. One day later, she was gone, vanished. And just like that, Karen Campbell became Ted Bundy's first known victim in Colorado. Her murder would end up bringing Bundy back to Aspen, by that time in handcuffs, though those didn't last for long. I'm Erin Udell with the Fort Collins Coloradoan, and you're listening to Hunted, Inside Ted Bundy's Trail of Terror, Part 2. people I worked on, at least the Colorado angle of the Ted Bundy story in the mid to late 70s, and um, people might say, oh, what an incredible story, but at that time it really wasn't. It, it, just, it just kept escalating. That's Jay Worley, and in 1975, well, I'll just let him tell you. I was a reporter in the fall of 1975 uh, for the Denver Post when the uh, um, information first started to come to light about, uh, uh, at that time, two murders, um, Karen Campbell in uh, Aspen in in early 75, January 75, as I recall, and uh, Denise Oler-Berson in in Grand Junction a couple of months later. they were, they were tied to a suspect named uh, Ted Theodore Robert Bundy. At the end of 1975, Worley was an investigative reporter with The Post, and he was putting together a story, a big one. Women in Colorado had started mysteriously disappearing that year, 
eerily matching the circumstances of similar abductions and murders in Washington and Utah. The victims were young, late teens or early 20s, and beautiful, many with long, dark hair. The thing I remember most is the long, straight, dark hair parted in the middle uh, was kind of a um, unifying factor in, in a bunch of murders of, of young women, even teenagers, um, in the Northwest, the, the Mountain West, um, you know, Colorado and Utah. Um, we started, I, from there, I mean, just worked on a story that tried to piece together every, <laughs> every murder or disappearance of a, of a young woman who um, had long, straight, dark hair. Uh, I was told later that was kind of foolish because uh, there were there were more women with that hairstyle than without it at the time. Right. I I wondered if I was was on to something here or as everybody else, not just me. Um, and but this, that story um, I will never forget was uh, I think it was on page three or something. It it wasn't a front page story, and you know much to the frustration of him reporter at the time I thought that it should have been played better but as explained to me and and I think rightfully so this was all speculation uh, or at least a 90% speculation. Speculation or not Worley's article seems to be the first one to come out of Colorado and link Ted Bundy to murders and abductions here. Three Colorado murders very similar to Coast the headline read Here's a little bit more of Worley's story. A series of murders and mysterious disappearances of young women in Colorado during the past year are remarkably similar to at least eight slayings in Utah and Washington, a Denver Post investigation shows. There have been at least three Colorado murders that fit the Washington-Utah pattern, starting February 17th with the discovery of the nude frozen body of a vacationing nurse who had been on a skiing holiday in Aspen with her fiancé. The nurse, Miss Karen Campbell, 23, of Dearborn, Michigan, simply vanished January 12th, according to reports at the time, when she left her fiancé at a snowmass ski lodge to return to her room to get a magazine. Worley's story goes on to say that witnesses reported seeing Campbell get off the hotel's elevator and walk towards her room. She wasn't seen again. Not until about a month later, February 17th, when her body was found in a snowbank a couple miles away from the Wildwood. She had suffered severe blows to the head, and marks on her body indicated that her hands had been tied behind her back. Until the fall of 1975, when Worley reported all of this, Colorado investigators had been cooperating with local news outlets, answering routine questions about these odd cases. But suddenly, That cooperation stopped, and agencies became tight-lipped about their spate of disappearances and Campbell's murder. That weirdly coincided with the arrest of a man in Utah, charged with kidnapping and attempted murder. The man was Theodore Robert Bundy, 28. While Karen Campbell was the only victim named in Worley's story, There were several other Colorado women on reporters' radars. It's why Worley wrote this story in the first place. 
About a month after Campbell's body was found, another woman, 26-year-old raven-haired ski instructor Julie Cunningham, vanished after leaving her apartment complex in Vail. In early April, 24-year-old Denise Oliverson of Grand Junction disappeared while riding her bike to her parents' house. Later that month, Susie Cooley, a senior at Nederland High School, disappeared while hitchhiking in Nederland, Colorado. Her body was found a few weeks later by a road worker. She had been hit over the head with a large rock. On June 30, 1975, 24-year-old Shelley Robertson was seen hitchhiking in Denver, trying to get to her job in nearby Golden, Colorado. Her nude body was found almost two months later, inside the entrance of a mine shaft near Berthet Falls, Colorado. Those first three women, Karen Campbell, Julie Cunningham, and Denise Oliverson, ended up being confirmed victims of Ted Bundy. In Shelley Robertson's case, the Clear Creek County Sheriff's Office named Bundy as their top suspect, but they were never able to fully connect him to the crime. And the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, which handles Susie Cooley's case, said that while rumors about Ted Bundy being involved in her murder exist, there has never been any evidence to support that claim. Based on what we now know about Ted Bundy, his final Colorado victim was likely Denise Oliverson in early April 1975. After her disappearance, Bundy would cross state lines yet again, and he wouldn't stop killing. In the meantime, though, in late spring 1975, two Grand Junction, Colorado detectives were alerted to some evidence that had been processed in April, about a month earlier. A bike had been found under the Fifth Street Bridge, along with a pair of shoes. The, the real truth of the matter is, is the booking in of the bicycle and the shoes was an incredible screw-up. Uh, by the police department. Doug Rushing and I, as detectives, didn't even know that stuff had been booked into evidence until I think almost a month later. Denise Oliverson had been missing uh, about a month. That's Jim Fromm. He was a Grand Junction police detective from 1973 to 1976. He mentioned another detective he worked with, Doug Rushing. In 75, Fromm said he and Rushing were up to their eyeballs in unsolved homicides. There had been a strange spate of killings in the small western slope town. But the disappearance of Denise Oliverson on April 6th was a real head-scratcher. As I remember, she was riding her bicycle to a place called Orchard Mesa to see her boyfriend. She, she would have either had to have ridden over the Vidoc which didn't have a very good uh, lane for bicycle riders, or she would have had to have just gone under the Vidoc, got off her bicycle, and and uh, <clears throat> lifted it over the actual railroad tracks, and there's a number of tracks down there, and then got on it on the other side and kept riding up to her boyfriend's. At the, the initial time we started the investigation, we didn't believe that she was anything other than a missing person. Uh, it was only as we got into it further <clears throat> that we started to really get concerned. 
What made uh, you concerned? Huh? What made you concerned? Well, we couldn't find her. And and when you're looking for a missing person, you're doing two things. You're looking for the missing person, number one. Number two, you're looking for a reason why she's missing. We couldn't find a reason either. When the report was, was eventually forwarded to us about the bicycle and the shoes being found, then we got really concerned. Missing persons don't have a tendency to go barefoot at the time they want to go missing. That doesn't make sense. We started to interview more and more people, and the more people we interviewed, the more concerned we got. It just, it did not make sense. It started to make a little sense, though, when Fromm and Rushing got a call from Bob Perkins, a Colorado Bureau of Investigation agent based out of nearby Montrose, Colorado. He wanted to come up and chat with the detectives, and he brought a book, a binder kind of. It was full of information about the disappearances and homicides of women in Utah and Colorado, and they were all remarkably similar. And this book made incredible sense. If you looked at at all of the girls uh, that had been murdered that were in this book, they had the same physical characteristics. They all parted their hair in the middle. They all weighed about the same. They all had basically uh, dark hair. They all had pierced ears. And to a certain extent, they, they looked like they were sisters. From the time we looked at Perkins' book until Bundy was eventually caught was not very long. Mm. Okay. Um, so... So the the police departments didn't have a lot of time to work on the elements of the homicide because Bundy came along, and then everybody started working on Bundy. We found, we were able to locate within a short period of time a credit card receipt where he had gotten gas at like 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, which is the day of the week that she disappeared. He had gotten gas on the day she disappeared within 50 yards of where the shoes and bicycle were found. He saw her. He saw her uh, right under the viaduct. I think he drove as far underneath there as he could. I have no idea how he got her attention, but I think he abducted her from down there. Uh, and I think he murdered her and dumped her body in the river. Mm. And that would I mean, be t- l- listen. The one thing you you'll you'll never <clears throat> get a great feeling for, unless you were an investigator in some of these, is just how spooky this guy was. After Denise Oliverson's disappearance from Grand Junction, Bundy seemed to have crossed state lines again. On May 6th, he abducted and killed 12-year-old Lynette Culver from her junior high in Pocatello, Idaho. On June 28, 1975, he was back in Utah, where Susan Curtis, 15, disappeared during a conference at Brigham Young University. Later that summer, though, Ted Bundy's time as a phantom would run out. 
On August 16, 1975, Bundy was driving slowly through a residential area in Granger, Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake City, when he saw a Utah Highway Patrol officer sitting in his cruiser. Bundy booked it, fleeing the scene, and the officer pursued him, pulling him over and noticing a few weird things. First, that the front passenger seat in Bundy's Volkswagen Beetle had been removed, and then upon searching further, he found a bag full of what he thought was burglary tools. A ski mask, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, an ice pick. Bundy was arrested, and police quickly connected him back to his sole surviving Utah victim, Carol Duranch. Remember, Duranch had almost been taken by Bundy back in 1974. On March 1, 1976, after a four-day trial, Ted Bundy was found guilty of kidnapping and assaulting Duranch. He was sentenced to one to 15 years in prison. And all the while, just one state away, investigators in Colorado were finally sharing notes. Within the year, they would have enough evidence to bring Bundy back, to possibly stand trial for a different charge, murder. More on that after this break. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably like me, fascinated with decades-old crimes and unsolved Colorado mysteries. Putting episodes like this together, tracking people down, conducting interviews, digging through documents, it's fascinating. And it's one of my favorite parts about my job here at The Coloradoan. It's also a lot of work. Work that's made possible by Coloradoan subscribers. If you'd like to hear more true crime and local history storytelling, including things like this podcast, let my bosses know by getting a digital subscription to our work today. If you purchase one at coloradoan.com slash podcast offer, It'll link back to this podcast and show that our readers and listeners support and value work like this. The more support we get, the more chances I have to dig into cases that matter to you. The more chances I'll have to unearth local mysteries and tell stories that deserve to be told. Getting a digital subscription to The Coloradoan not only supports the 17 journalists in this newsroom, it also unlocks a ton of neat local offerings. Subscribers also get access to a video, story, and archived photos specific to this very Bundy project. If you didn't catch that link earlier, it's coloradoan.com slash podcast offer. So consider subscribing today. And to all of our subscribers out there, thank you. November of uh, 1976 in Utah. That's Chuck Leidner. He's an attorney in Denver now. But around that time, back at the end of 1976, he was a young public defender for the 9th Judicial District in Colorado. As news swirled of Ted Bundy potentially being arrested and extradited back to Colorado for the murder of Karen Campbell, Leidner said he prepared. He knew that if Bundy was brought back, he would likely be one of his public defenders. So he traveled to Utah that November 
and met with Bundy's attorney from the Durant trial, John O'Connell. We went out to see him at the uh, went out to see Ted at the at the penitentiary, and and, and um, I, I'm going to go with Mr. O'Connell was filling me in on the details of the Utah case. This was the kidnapping of Carol Durant, and um, filling me in as far as the psychological evaluations were concerned and what to expect from Ted um, when I got there, and. He was every bit of what was described, which is basically a narcissistic, um, egocentric individual who was much smarter than everybody else and knew much more than everybody else and you know, thought he could talk his way out of everything. So I don't know if you could speak to this, but, but in your experience with him and in talking to him, was Bundy as smart as he thought he was? <laughs> was he actually a smart guy or was it all just... <laughs> it was all smoke and mirrors. Yeah, you think? I don't. I don't think he was bright. He was. He was. Yeah, I don't think he was bright. Hmm. I'm going to be honest. This was probably my favorite part of all of my interviews I've done for this podcast, because it was the answer that I least expected. You've heard it before, and I've even said it earlier in this podcast. Ted Bundy was known for being smart and smooth talking. It's part of what makes him so fascinating. But you know what? It was actually nice to hear someone say, nope, he wasn't really that smart. I I didn't think he was very bright in that he could never grasp the principles of what was going on in the courtroom. He never understood what the procedures were. He never got what it was about. And that may be not only a lack of intelligence, but it may also be back into this egocentric thing where it was all about Ted wasn't about the case, it wasn't about the facts, it wasn't about anything else other than Ted. In early 1976, when Bundy was arrested for the murder of Karen Campbell and extradited back to Aspen, he definitely had an audience. Um, came back to Aspen and immediately was, was you know, a media, media star, small town, big fish. I have got to keep myself together, I have got to stay calm, I have got to keep my presence of mind, because as long as I do that, I'm going to be these people. That was Bundy, actually, doing an undated jailhouse interview in Aspen. This likely would have been in early 1977. It's from NBC's archives, and it shows that ego again. I've got to keep my presence of mind, he said, because as long as I do that, I'm going to beat these people. What was being alleged against Bundy at the time was that he murdered Karen Campbell. And honestly, from my interviews and my research, it sounds like the case against him was kind of weak. Weak enough to the point that Leidner even said if Bundy had just stayed put, if he had just sat in court and twiddled his thumbs, he likely would have been acquitted. That's not what happened, though. Let's go back to the morning of June 7, 1977. Bundy had spent most of that year in Aspen for pretrial hearings in the Campbell case. Here's Leidner again. We were doing uh, death penalty arguments, and uh, the way the Pitkin County Courthouse is set up, I don't know if you've seen it, the the district court at that time, was uh, the judge's bench at 
I don't know what end of the building that would be, the west end, north end. It was towards the um, towards the Red Mountain that overlooked Red Mountain, and the tables for counsel and the defendant. And then behind the railing was the library. And so we were up there arguing. Death penalty. The judge took a morning recess. I went out in the hallway smoking a cigarette and chit-chatting with people. And a sheriff's deputy came by and they asked me if I'd seen Bundy. And I looked at him and I said, I remember this clearly because it's very, it was a bizarre conversation. I said, yeah, it's not my turn to watch him. And Bundy just was in the library by himself. Nobody was guarding him. Nobody had him. They, he wasn't manacled. He wasn't confined or restrained or anything. And he just jumped out the courthouse window. People running around like crazy, uh, going off in different directions. I remember distinctly the lawyers who were there. We went over to the Jerome Hotel and had lunch, a couple beers, and uh, watched the locals going crazy. You know, people showing up on horseback with bullet belts, what they call bandoleros, wrapped around their chest and on horseback going off hunting Bundy. I mean, it was just, it was just a bizarre scene. Funnily enough, I actually talked to someone who was just outside the Hotel Jerome, where Leidner was watching these things unfold. Who knows, maybe she could have been in the crowd that he was referring to. But I do remember going back where they had a stack of flyers with his picture on it and a description, and we were told, get out on the street and go start handing these out, stop the traffic and do that. And so... When we got out, I, if I remember correctly, it was one of the major intersections or right near, it was Mellon, Maine, right where the Hotel Jerome is, which is pretty famous. Anybody that knows Aspen knows where that is. Her name is Kathy Silver, then Kathy Earl. And at the time, she was 26 and only a couple months into her new job as a traffic control officer for the Aspen Police Department. Did minor accidents with no injuries, you know, towing of vehicles, school crossing stuff, all the stuff that the guys didn't want to do. No, I'm just kidding. But um, bottom line was that's how I started there and then eventually went into patrol and did juvenile work and things like that. Kathy and the other traffic control officers leapt into action handing out flyers. Officers set up roadblocks and checked every car trying to leave Aspen. What fascinated me from being just a city girl was that guys from down valley came riding up valley on horses with rifles it was like posses were forming and i mean they were going to like protect their women in this community but it was like i'd never seen anything like that before and so you felt a little bit like guy this must really be a bad guy i don't i don't think i really even knew that much about him at the time you know had no idea until this must be bad if we're out here passing out flyers and stuff like leidner said It truly does sound like a bizarre scene, especially because Bundy wasn't caught for a while, for almost a week. He ended up fleeing into the mountains, breaking into summer cabins and subsisting on what little food he could find. He'd eventually make his way back into town, where he stole a car and tried to drive it out on June 13th. On his way out of Aspen, however, he was spotted by a pair of Pitkin County Sheriff's deputies. They didn't know it was Bundy at the time, They just saw a driver swerve and thought he could be drunk. So they pulled him over, and after he was identified, that was that. Bundy's days on the lam, at least this time around, were over. He was back in custody, and because of his escape, he was sent to Glenwood Springs, home of the Garfield County Jail, 
and a much more appropriate solitary confinement cell. I don't know if I told you Aaron talking before, but I was always perplexed whenever I saw Bundy movie. Um, I read books that were very accurate about, you know, the investigation and the investigators, that kind of thing. But when they portray the movie for drama's sake, they would always leave out the part about Aspen, which I could not understand because it was kind of really interesting how he escaped, you know, from the courthouse. It was such a, a fascinating kind of story that always got, like, on the cutting room floor for some reason. That's true, actually. And it's funny that Kathy told me that. I always thought the same thing. Bundy is such a well-known criminal, but I feel like his time in Colorado is usually kind of brushed over. You rarely hear about him jumping from that courthouse window, about the wild goose chase he led authorities on, about the militia of old-school Aspen cowboys on horseback. Aspen breathed a sigh of relief when Bundy was recaptured. That was a close one, right? Jokes abounded. Or at least one joke. An Aspen native who grew up in town told it to me. It had to do with the Pitkin County Sheriff at the time of Bundy's escape, Dick Canast. What's a Canast burger, it goes. It's a burger with no Bundy. The sheriff sent out a daily bulletin on June 13th after Bundy was found. The final line reads, Need I say it? Teddy is home. Hopefully to stay this time. Only, he wasn't. Up next, Unhunted. When we drove him daily from Glenwood to Aspen, uh, he would ask me and whoever my partner was, uh, hey Leon, uh, where does that road go? Hey Leon, how deep is the snow up that road? Uh, what city's in that direction? And to me it was obvious he's planning his next escape. As people would do, the conversations turned to, where do you think Ted is? What do you think Ted's doing? And I had no idea. But then when the killings in Florida took place, I, we were out to dinner with some people, and I, I said, you know, I'll bet you that Ted Bundy's in Florida, because it just smelled of him. By the time he got to Florida, he was not, he was not the refined killer of 1974, 75, back in 74, 75. What you see at Chi Omega was nothing more than a frenzy. It's an absolute frenzy. There's no abduction. This was just about killing as many women as he could kill at one time. And in fact, each time Bundy was captured, it wasn't because they tracked him down through detective work. Each time it was because he was a bad driver driving a stolen vehicle. And that to me is the most chilling thing about the whole Bundy tale is that, he, you know, had he been a better driver, uh, he might never have been caught. 